my name is Dr. Kristen Brown, and I joined Northern State University's English department this past fall. Thank you for tuning in to this Earth Day podcast. It is a show highlighting undergraduate research and amplifying student voices here at Northern. Earth Day presents an opportunity for us to have important conversations about the ways we can acknowledge and address important social, economic, and environmental concerns that deserve our attention. I named this show Many Voices, One Planet because it amplifies a multitude of students' perspectives while reminding us, I hope, of our commonality, of what we share and how we are connected. I hope this show inaugurates the first of an annual tradition. And I hope this attention to environmental health and stewardship extends far beyond Earth Day, just as I hope my students' research and advocacy extends far beyond the semester's end. Many Voices, One Planet was made possible with the generous funding of the CETL grants. Many thanks to CETL director Ben Harley and to my co-recipient Jason Knowles, who constructed the new podcast booth with student support. Most importantly, this show would not have been possible without the support of the students who created it, who conducted careful research, articulated persuasive arguments, and shared their important and timely contributions. I organize this show according to topics, much like conference panels. This organization will provide you, the listener, with various ways to think about and engage with important environmental issues, ranging from the global to the local, while encouraging you to consider the connections among all of them. The first panel, titled Environmental Stewardship in Global Industries, highlights the role of industries, especially those we depend on in our everyday lives, to be accountable for their operational practices, especially as they relate to waste. It asks us to, the consumer, to develop ethical consumption habits and to demand that these industries adopt or modify their practices in environmentally sustainable ways. We will hear from Sky Williams, Jackson McNeil, Hannah Thompson, and Ella Tushin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to my Earth Day podcast. My name is Skylyn Williams, and today I will be talking about menstrual products, specifically disposable pads and tampons and their impact on the environment, as well as what we can do to reduce and eliminate the excess waste that is created from these products. Now, I know what you are probably thinking. Why is this an important issue? Well, disposable pads and tampons are thrown into our environment every single day, piling up in our landfills, sewer systems, and marine environments. The products pollute the environment, and it's our job to do something about it. Before we begin, there are a couple things you should know about these menstrual products that might put this issue into perspective for you. According to Harrison and Tyson in an article titled Menstruation, Environmental Impact and Need for Global Health Equity in 2022, menstruation occurs for approximately 26% of the global population, which equivalates to 800 million people menstruating each day. Since disposable pads and tampons are the most commonly used menstrual product worldwide, that means that millions of people are throwing away thousands of pads and tampons into the environment. Unfortunately, these products are not biodegradable and stay within our environment, piling up day after day for about 500 to 800 years. So, what can we do to reduce this excess waste? 
First of all, Leo Rodriguez states in her article, which period products are best for the environment in 2021, that pads, tampons, panty liners, the packaging and wrapping generate more than 200,000 metric tons of waste annually. That is an unnecessary and extreme amount of plastic, a non-biodegradable material piling up in the environment since most of these products are made entirely up of plastic. In order to significantly reduce this number, menstruators should use reusable menstrual products such as menstrual cups and reusable pads, period underwear, and tampon applicators instead of disposable pads and tampons. By doing so, almost all of the excess materials that disposable pads and tampons generate will be eliminated. We should also demand that manufacturers create alternative disposable pads and tampons that are more eco-friendly. In an experimental research and design article by Capiello and her colleagues in an article titled Design of Compostable Materials for the Manufacturing of Flexible Tampon Applicators in 2022, manufacturers can make tampon applicators out of biodegradable raw materials that are just as comfortable and affordable as current tampons on the market, and they can also do this with pads as well. This shows that creating better versions of products that are already on the market is possible and that it should be done now. I urge all of you to advocate and or use reusable menstrual products to reduce the amount of pollution in our environment caused by these products, as well as demand these manufacturers to create better alternatives of the products that we have now so that women do not have to give up using these products altogether. Anyways, I want to thank you for listening to my podcast and remember that all trash goes somewhere when you throw it away. So stop and think twice before you dispose your menstrual products. I am a Northern State University student studying business administration. And in this podcast, we will talk about food waste and businesses and restaurants and the lack of law requiring businesses to implement new strategies and ways to combat their food waste. So, let's begin. According to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, nearly one-fourth of the food produced in the U.S. ends up going to waste. This results in wasted resources spent by businesses to produce and transport food items. So, what they're saying is that Obviously, when you throw away food, you're losing money. So, businesses should implement strategies to combat this instead of just throwing the food away. But, we'll get to that later. Um, The Chamber of Commerce also says that reducing food waste represents a tremendous opportunity for helping people in need and protecting the environment. While boosting food companies' own profitability and sustainability. So, moving forward here, we have two problems. We have the problem of food waste having a direct correlation to the environment by, you know, it going to landfills and it releasing gases into the atmosphere, which causes a plethora of hazards and other environmental factors that are not good. We also have 
the growing hunger problem across the globe. All this food can be, you know, given to to the people that need it. Granted, yes, not all the food will make it to them, but if businesses develop new programs and ways to get get them the food, then we're doing something and not nothing. And what I'm lastly going to cover here is how businesses aren't really forced to do anything. The Congress is just not doing enough. For instance, you know, from the very few things that I've seen from Congress, I mean, you have a Zero Food Waste Act um, that was passed in 2021 where um, the law gives the businesses incentives to implement the strategies to combat the food waste problems. It doesn't, it doesn't force them to implement the strategies. It just says, hey, if you do it, we'll reward you for it. So we need to get these changes going by implementing laws that force the businesses to implement strategies and ways to get the food to the hungry to the hungry and not wasted in the trash. Thank you. Hi everyone. My name is Hannah Thompson and I'm a sophomore here at Northern State University. I'm on the volleyball team here and I'm majoring in human performance with hopes of going into physical therapy. My topic is environmental stewardship in healthcare and I chose this topic because it related to my future career. Now, Environmental stewardship may be unfamiliar to some of you. Environmental stewardship is defined as the responsible use and protection of the natural environment through conservation and sustainable practices to enhance ecosystem resilience and human well-being. This definition is found from Stuart Chapin, who works in environmental science at Harvard University. For part of this project, we were told to write an advocacy letter to an organization that related to our topic. I decided to write to a physical therapy office back home and get their thoughts on environmental stewardship in their facilities. I haven't received anything back yet, but I'm hoping to hear something soon as I find this topic very interesting to learn about. The effects of not incorporating environmental stewardship are severe. Healthcare is considered one of the highest satisfaction jobs one can have, and only a few jobs are as important as the ones in healthcare. Prioritizing environmental stewardship in healthcare facilities, such as eliminating non biodegradable materials, can be a lasting solution to on today's environmental issues. Even in the 21st century, people still deny that caring for environment is essential. An article by two surgeons, Dr. Kai and Dr. Bratt, did studies trying to identify ways to become more green in hospitals. The article states that healthcare facilities are the second leading cause of waste in the United States, producing over 4 billion pounds of waste annually. Most of this comes from operating rooms, which accommodates 70% of the waste used in healthcare. Dr. Kai and Dr. Bratt did research and found that using reusable surgical gowns can reduce the waste by 50,000 pounds and save $60,000 annually. A simple change like this can help limit the waste that we use in healthcare facilities. For my next point of research, I'm going to be talking about the plastic supplies used in healthcare.
The plastic supplies used in healthcare, such as masks, gloves, bags, and other resources are very dangerous to doctors and patients. According to a study done by the Center for International Environmental Law in an article titled Plastic and Human Health, a life cycle approach to plastic pollution, it states that over 170 fracking chemicals that are used to produce the main feedstocks for plastic have known human health impacts, including cancer and weakened immune system. Eliminating these plastics and switching to environmental-friendly supplies such as reusable masks and gloves can help limit the toxic effects that the plastic has. If we fix these issues in our healthcare facilities, we'd be helping to limit waste that would help save our environment. You can help by making simple changes, like using reusable resources that limit the plastic in our environment. Hello, my name is Ella Tushin. I am from a small town in South Dakota called Alexandria. I am a Northern freshman majoring in art and I want to talk about fast fashion. Fast fashion refers to the mass production of cheap and stylish clothes that are produced at rapid rates. This causes significant damage to the planet, harms animals, and exploits workers. Now, everyone loves things that are cheaply priced, especially when it comes to clothes. You're able to get a ton of clothes for a very cheap price. However, due to the working conditions in which the workers of these companies must endure, it doesn't really seem worth the cheap price. Women and even children are forced to work in terrible conditions and get paid very little. One of the most common fast fashion companies, known as Sheen, only pays their workers four cents per piece of clothing they make. According to Earth.org, in order for a worker to provide for their family or even just themselves, they must work 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. The workers may even endure verbal and sometimes physical abuse from managers. But people are not the only ones suffering from this. Fast fashion makes up 10% of carbon dioxide emissions, pollutes bodies of water, and the clothes that people don't properly get rid of harm wildlife. Even when washing fast fashion textiles, microplastics degrade into the wastewater. Fish then consume the microplastics. When these fish are caught, they are sold for people to eat. Statistics from Scuba News shows that 75% of fish you eat contains microplastics. Are your $10 worth of sweats or crop tops really worth the burden of the harsh work environments workers must endure, or the probability that you've been eating microplastics? Maybe it's time to start thinking of better ways to find clothes. Next up, we are looking at the importance of being outdoors by Morgan Bingham, Sam Tremelling, Ray Flock, and Maddie Vogel. Hello, my name is Morgan Bingham. I am currently a second year student here at Northern State University, majoring in psychology. After I graduate, I plan to apply to graduate school so I can obtain my master's degree in counseling. My essay topic concerns nature deficit disorder, which is also known as NDD. Before I go any further, I want to make an important point. NDD is not a medical diagnosis. It does not appear in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or in the International Classification of Diseases. NDD is a term that Richard Louv coined to describe the rising levels 
of obesity, ADHD, depression, and many more symptoms in children due to insufficient outdoor time. In 2005, Louv published his book titled Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. In his book, Louv goes on to tell his audience that he is concerned for the future of nature and children because parents allow their kids to stay inside and play on their tablets or gaming devices. Throughout his book, he gives his audience, which includes parents, teachers, and doctors, over 100 actions they can take to help children get off of their electronic devices and into nature. A couple of suggestions Louv stated in his book included parents taking their kids to parks to play and allowing their children to roam around their neighborhood freely. At the start of my research, I fully agreed with Louv on his stance on NDD. I did not understand how parents could allow their kids to sit inside all day and play on their devices. Then I came across a scarlet scholarly article by Elizabeth Dickinson titled The Misdiagnosis, Rethinking Nature Deficit Disorder. In her article published in 2013, she points out that while Louvre makes a great point about NDD, he may be too quick to diagnose all children who do not get outside enough. He forgets to think of low-income families and children who live in urban areas and cannot access green spaces like wealthy children. Another fact that Lou failed to consider is the dangers of living in inner cities. Parents may not be comfortable letting their children roam around an inner city neighborhood in fear of their kids being harmed or abducted. After reading this perspective on the issue, my viewpoint changed. I realized I was guilty of thinking it would be easy to get children outdoors because I grew up in a small town that was relatively safe. My mother was not afraid of what would happen if I spent hours outdoors alone, and I had access to parks throughout my whole childhood. I believe those who grow up in small towns or predominantly white neighborhoods have developed an environmental privilege, and instead of judging those who cannot get their children outdoors due to safety concerns or location issues, we need to come together to find ways to get them out of doors and into nature safely. Thank you. Welcome to my podcast where I'm going to be talking about some of the issues that the loss of green, sca- green space is causing in London. My name is Sam Chmelling and I'm attending Northern State University. I'm a human performance major and I look to become a physiotherapist in the future. I currently participate on the track team where I was recruited from England. To start off, this topic is quite close to me because London is a city that I'm able to access very easily, just a 30-minute train ride uh, to the city. Uh, And every time I visit there, I'm always seeing some kind of construction work or a building site that is currently destroying green space to build for apartments, buildings, offices, different high-rise buildings. And it's an issue that has been going on for quite a while, ever since the Industrial Revolution, um, where many factories uh, were made uh, around the ports in London uh, for trade. Um, But some people aren't, especially the government, aren't seeing a lot of the issues uh, with destroying these green spaces and turning them into brownfield sites. it doesn't only harm the environment, but it also harms humans uh, as a whole population. 
um, where according to um, a psychologist that Tarn Rogers spoke to, uh, they mentioned that the highest, like the greatest spike in happiness is when you enter a park. Um, this is definitely a huge part for mental health as well. Um, where during COVID-19, a lot of people were um, stuck in these apartments without green space uh, and they were struggling to be able to get outdoors and be able to find exercise. Um, on top of that, uh, there are, of course, the environmental issues. Um, this is including um, air pollution as well as um, the temperature. Um, when the, a lot of these trees are actually able to block the um, the radiation and mitigate the heat that is getting onto the surface of of the tarmac. Um, this was looked at by the University of Leeds in 2015, um, and it also showed that um, flooding in urban areas has greatly increased by the loss of trees and green spaces because it's not able to uh, absorb the water into the permeable surface. Rather so, it just uh, runs off uh, ends up in the streets, uh, which can also cause uh, pollution of the different um, water sources that we have access to, right, rush, uh, washing off a lot of the um, pesticides and things that are on crops runs into our water sources. And unfortunately, that is how water pollution and our water quality is decreasing. Uh, on top of that, there are some ways that um, we have been looking at to uh, almost reverse and slow down the effects of this. Um, in an interview conducted by um, Shirley Rogers, uh, Rodriguez, sorry, um, who was the deputy uh, mayor of London, she did mention that between 2017 and 2020, there will be a nine million pound fund, uh, which is going to be put towards different, uh, creating new green spaces and regenerating them. Um, on top of this, also in an article that Mike Childs in 2020 uh, put out, he did state that there are many um, ways and policies that we can introduce, such as for local governments making it a, a necessity to have green space for people to access, especially around school grounds. Um, it's shown that cars have been given so much space on uh, in, in the on our land, uh, why aren't we able to keep any of that green with trees, parks, nature reserves? So a lot of this does show that there are some issues with the laws and the policies, um, but there are also fixes that we are able to uh, encounter and move forward to stop the, uh, the issue from worsening. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Uh, I've been Sam Jamelling, and I hope, hope you have a great rest of your day. Hello, I'm Maddie. This semester I've been researching ecotherapy and its benefits to the health of humans, the environment, and the economy. And I am Ray, and I'm going to be talking about the benefits Urban Garden has to the environment, the economy, and our health. So Ray, did you know that according to the American Public Health Association, Americans live shorter lives and suffer more health-related issues compared to other high-income countries? I did not know that. That's very concerning. I agree. This is why I wrote my call to action letter to both the hospitals in town to inform them of the benefits of ecotherapy on physical, emotional, and mental health. I also requested that they prescribe this as a treatment more often rather than using drugs. It's a very good idea. Could you explain ecotherapy to me a little more? 
So ecotherapy has a number of names that refer to it, like nature therapy, wilderness therapy, horticulture therapy, and more. Um, this can be done in a number of ways, like going on a walk, gardening, going on adventures like water rafting, or even training animals. The idea of nature therapy is that surrounding yourself in the environment can benefit your overall health. Ecotherapy should be used in medicine more. John LaPuma, who is a board-certified internist, doctor, organic farmer, and author, strongly advocates for the use of nature therapy in medicine. In the article, he describes a long list of benefits that ecotherapy can have on one's overall health, while also mentioning that this can make the individual more connected with the environment, which in turn makes the person care about the environment more. That makes a lot of sense. The more time you spend in the environment, the more likely you are to care about how it's treated. Exactly. Another study I found that was conducted at the University of Copenhagen, Nyakata Therapy Garden, was done to determine whether participants of a nature-based therapy have changes in their behavioral habits after a year of intervention. The results showed that the individuals have a new approach to green spaces, new awareness of self in the environment, new attitudes towards everyday tasks, and maintaining beneficial mindsets. One participant said that they have implemented these learned mindsets into their workplace. They shared that they take nature walks on their break at work if he needs to. That's cool that he was able to transfer those mindsets into his work life. I would love to be able to take a nature walk while at work. On the other hand, pharmaceutical companies would not be in favor of ecotherapy. That's because these companies rely on doctors prescribing medications in order to develop, produce, and market drugs. These drugs cost the economy billions of dollars each year and are often overused and wasted. Wow, that's a lot of money going down the drains for drugs that are being overused and wasted. I agree. As human and environmental health continues to decline, it's important to find solutions to aid these issues. Ecotherapy could be a game-changing tool to not only improve the health of humans, but to increase awareness surrounding environmental stewardship and to save the economy on overused and wasted drugs. Thank you, Maddie. That was a very informative topic. I will definitely have to use ecotherapy in my lifestyle. Speaking of the environment, have you ever thought about a vegetable saving the environment? A vegetable? Yes, a vegetable. Eric Bell and his team conducted the Monte Carlo simulation, which is a study that provided fresh tomatoes to 10 different urban areas in the U.S. This was a scheme to minimize the tomato-related greenhouse gas emissions across all those 10 areas, and the results of this study indicated that they could decrease the overall tomato-related greenhouse gas emissions by 13% and the total transportation-related emissions by 34%. Wow, that's very interesting. I wonder what it would be if we added all the other vegetables into the mix. I agree, and that's why I decided to write my letter to city council. I want to inform them about urban gardens and all the different types of ways that we could use them, and as well as the perks that they would have for our community. That's a very good idea, Ray. 
Another cool way I saw this being done was in Tucson, Arizona. And what was happening was in Pimas County's public libraries. Maya Kapoor interviewed those in the town and researched the newspapers, and they had been re renting seeds out to the community. This is all done because of the donations received from the people in the town. And according to Gary Nabhan, who was the co-founder of Native Seeds in Search, said that it really is an indigenous and immigrant movement. And it's in the households of the poor who can't afford high bills, whose kids need diverse nutrition. That's a very cool way to get people to garden while also helping the community. I agree too, but the only issue here is the chance that these spaces will be improperly managed. According to Climate Smart Urban Agriculture, this can increase our water consumption and risk of use of pesticides and risk the chance of non-native species that could potentially put the local biodiversity at risk. That's scary. Is there anything we can do to make this less of a risk? Yes, there is. Thank you for asking. This dilemma can easily be resolved if we were just to take our time to educate ourselves as well as the younger generations. All we need to do is bring more awareness surrounding what is safe and what is not safe when gardening. Thank you for sharing, Ray. That was very informative. I might have to start my own garden this summer. Yes, and we encourage all of you to spend more time in nature as the health of our planet is rapidly declining. Thank you for taking the time to listen. The next section we will be talking about is extraction and electricity. This section is presented by Aiden Russell, Aiden Viox, and George Bowling. Hello, I'm Aiden Viox, and today I'm here with Ryan Hirschhorn, and Ryan's going to be asking me a few questions regarding lithium mining and its, and its effects on the environment. So Aiden, tell me what are some of the environmental risks associated with lithium extraction? The main two risks that come with lithium extraction is both the chemicals used and the amount of water used. The, the chemicals used in the process for lithium extraction prove harmful to the environment and have been shown to last long after the process has taken place. They can cause high mortality rates in fish and local bacteria in the water along with the wildlife in the surrounding area. This information is from Kunda 2020. The risk associated with water is the large amounts consumed during the process. Over 500,000 gallons of water are needed to produce a metric ton of lithium. And 98% of this water is unusable after the process and is wasted. This is from year 2020. This causes a great strain on the local environments and cities and leaves no water for the rest of the citizens and it forces them to bus water in. Adding on to that, what do you think needs to be changed to make lithium extraction more environmentally friendly? The major things that need to change is the chemicals used. The current process uses the cheaper alternative for chemicals, but if they could hone in and make regional specific chemicals that would treat and not harm the environment, it can make the process more environmentally friendly as a whole. Along with this, there are alternative methods and increasing the lithium recycling rate instead of wasting lithium after it's used in batteries. One last question here. What would you tell those who feel it's worth the risk for electric vehicles? Now many people may think that the environmental 
impact is worth the risk for the electric vehicles, but this isn't the case. It's simply kicking the cost of electric vehicle or kicking the cost of electric vehicles down the road, and it's pretty much the same as a gas vehicle. It's just on the front end versus the back end with gasoline. Along with this, the people who live in the surrounding towns for lithium mines themselves say it's not worth it and it's not sustainable. If something doesn't change, they won't be able to continue living in these regions. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Hi, my name is Aiden Russell. I'm currently attending at Northern State University in South Dakota. My major is human performance and fitness. Um, I'm a freshman, I'm on the football team on a scholarship, and I'm coming here to touch topic on EV. And I'm sure as you're thinking like EV, I mean, it's an interesting topic and I just don't think it's talked about amongst its negatives than its positives. When we all think about EV, we think about the car is quiet. You can't hear the car. It's not gas admission. You don't have to change your oil. I mean, there's lots less things you have to worry about when you have an EV. There's less maintenance. Like, it's just a lot better for everyone in their lives. But that's the only thing we think about when we come to buy an EV. We're not thinking about the side effects, the negatives, or how it was created where this came from, how are EVs made from and where. And I'm here to touch on that right now. So during my research, I found numerous articles of Joe Biden. And basically he's declaring by 2050, he wants 50% of car sales to be EV. That's gonna require triple the amount of materials being used to create these electrical vehicles. I mean, if you truly think about it, 50% of car sales being EV. Not everyone in the world has enough money to buy an EVs. So we're just gonna be creating a bunch of electrical vehicles that no one can buy and will be sitting in waste and not being used and a waste of um, important materials from our planet that is damaging our planet and lithium lithium is used um, to make electrical batteries um, lithium mining it's a mineral an earth rare earth material it is used in countries all around the world and these countries when they mine these materials calling to lithium it takes away their water usage and it also destroys their land i mean these people in these countries are already struggling to live and we're just taking even more away from them just for us to have electrical vehicles when we already i think we have enough of that we don't need to overdo it all we're gonna do is destroy people's homes and this could potentially kill people like they're getting stripped of their own living because we just want to be happy of having tons of electrical vehicles when we are doing just fine in the world we are at this moment i mean there's got to be a better way of finding ways to create these evs and not allowing it to have to take away from important countries that need water land things to be able to live 
I mean, it's 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 just a really hard topic to get out there, and I wish like more people would touch on more of the negative than the positive because it's super important not just for us but for other countries who are trying to live just like us but we're we're taking away from them for no reason my name is Aiden Russell and thank you for listening hello everyone this is George Bowling I am a senior at Northern State University I am studying environmental science and today I will be talking to you about oil spills. First question I'll be talking about is how do oil spills affect the ocean? Now oil spills affect affect the ocean from its smallest organisms such as phytoplankton and coral all the way up, up to its biggest which are marine mammals such as whales and dolphins. The first quote or source I will be using is comes from the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, otherwise known as NOAA, and they will be talking about the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Prince William Sound, Alaska. This took place in 1989, and it spilled 11 million gallons of oil. And it has some stats on the death of wildlife in the area. So estimated 250,000 seabirds, 2,800 sea otters, 300 harbor seals, 250 bald eagles, and 22 killer whales, plus billions of salmon and herring eggs. Now that is devastating to an area destroying the uh, ecosystem and the diversity of the area. Now, after oil spills, obviously you gotta clean them up. So, next question is, how are oil spills cleaned up? I will be going to the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency of the USA. Uh, They have two ways that are uh, used for cleanup, burning, which is just burning the floating oil off the top of the ocean. And the next is skimmering, which is attaching two boats with buoys, or not buoys, but uh, a long line of cleanup absorbance and dragging it through the oil spill, gathering the oil. The next topic I will be talking about is how to prevent oil spills from happening. Now, how to prevent oil spills? Usually oil spills happen during transport. So either by boat or pipeline. So I believe that in order to make a safer transport, the transport tankers need to have thicker tanks and thicker hulls to prevent it from Uh, being punctured and flooding and releasing oil into the environment. Now for pipelines, I believe also pretty similar, just need to thicken the steel and do regular maintenance and pipelines will be perfectly fine. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Moving on to the fourth panel, talking about environmental stewardship in education and arts, we have Dylan Eckhart, Tanner Peets, 
and Elikozad. Hello, my name is Dylan Eckert, and I'm a music education major in my fourth year. My topic for this Earth Day podcast is how we, as environmental advocates, can use music festivals as a tool for further research into sustainability and to continue to spread awareness about the need to advocate for our planet's future. Oftentimes, these events may be seen as a place for debauchery or shenanigans, but several music festivals in the United Kingdom and the United States have shown that they can be effective tools for environmental awareness. For those unfamiliar with the term music festival, the Encyclopedia Britannica defines it as, quote, a series of performances at a particular place and inspired by a unifying theme, such as national music, modern music, or the promotion of a prominent composer's works. It may also take the form of a competition for performers or composers, end quote. This includes events many are familiar with, such as Lollapalooza, Coachella, and Eurovision. Beyond the typical music festival, camping festivals are a growing trend. The primary difference between the two events is how the attendees interact. While typical music festivals see their attendees show up for the performances and return home for the night before the next day of shows, camping festivals are a place that create a strong community among those in attendance that often keeps them on the grounds of the festival overnight, causing them to have to look into unique and inspired ways to keep up their personal hygiene. In 2013, Dr. Alison Brown, a senior lecturer of geography at the University of Manchester in England, led a study on lesser-known experiments that can be conducted at unorthodox locations. In her article titled, Already Existing Sustainability Experiments, Lessons on Water Demand, Cleanliness Practices, and Climate Adaptation from the UK Camping Music Festival, Brown discusses some of the trends the research team identified at two separate music festivals in the United Kingdom, the End of the Road Festival in Wiltshire, England, and Bestival in Dorset, England. In both instances, the authors of the experiment set forth the conclusion that the results of their study show that while basic requirement of water is needed for survival, cleanliness conventions are socially contingent and inherently flexible. Festivals present us with an experimental space in which alternative relationships between cleanliness and water are created, retrieved, and shared. Stateside, there are two prominent leaders in the effort to bring sustainability and advocacy to music festivals. In 2008, American singer-songwriter Jack Johnson and Minneapolis-based marketer Michael Martin founded a non-profit organization known as All at Once. The goal of this project is to get people involved at a deeper level. The project's website links people to global campaigns and local efforts while providing educational resources to help fans become active volunteers. Beyond his work with All at Once, Jack Johnson has been a constant pillar of change and activism at his concerts for many years and has begun to completely uproot rock and roll industry standards. At his concerts, he is known to provide recycling bins for plastic cups and bottles, a Michael Martin innovation known as hydration stations, and educational centers focused on ongoing environmental movements and volunteer opportunities within. Martin, too, has made great progress outside of his nonprofit work with Johnson. Using his knowledge and expertise of marketing, Martin has created a tool that he calls Effect Marketing for the Rock Industry. 
The goal of this new model is to use artists enacting social and environmental change to grow the brand of those who participate. While working with groups in Minneapolis, Martin invented the Enviro Rider contract that Live Nation and Rock Acts sign in order to improve their ecological impact. Using this contract and his contacts within the industry, Martin has signed more than 100 rock groups of varying fame, including acts such as R.E.M., Dave Matthews, and the Black Eyed Peas. These artists all work with Martin and his contract to ensure that their tours, concerts, and the festivals they attend are as close to carbon neutral as possible, and that those in attendance are aware of the environmental efforts that the groups and artists support. While there is evidence that music festivals show what we can do on the sustainability front, they are not exempt from contributing to the carbon footprint of the music industry. In an article titled, Do Music Festival Communities Address Environmental Sustainability and How? A Scottish Case Study, Dr. Matt Brennan cites two studies that discuss the tangible effects of music festivals on the environment. From Julie's Bicycle, a leading environmental consultancy in the British cultural sector, quote, it is estimated that the live music sector together with audience travel accounted for three quarters or 75% of the music industry's carbon emissions, with the greatest impact of all caused by large music festivals, end quote. Later, Brennan looks at a study from the British think tank group known as Powerful Thinking that determined, quote, the UK festival industry's total known on-site carbon emissions amount to 19,778 tons per year. However, since on-site emissions only count, account for 20% of a music festival's carbon footprint, if audience travel is taken into consideration, then the figure increases substantially to approximately 97,930 tons annually. And even this figure does not include impacts from equipment transport and crew and artist travel. End quote. Music is a basic form of expression in every culture. In some sense or another, every civilization from Sumer to ancient Greece, the Holy Roman Empire to ancient Egypt, and every group between then and now has had music as a way to express their thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Today, Music continues to act as a unifying force for people around the globe, with music festivals gathering some of the largest crowds among many social events. While music festivals are often viewed as a home of debauchery or a place for people to go solely for entertainment, the music festivals of the United Kingdom and United States are being used for research on conservation and environmental justice and should be the guide for new norms in environmental advocacy in the music industry. Hello, my name is Tanner Peets. I am currently in my fourth year at Northern State University where I am a music education major and my main area of study being voice. So today on this Earth Day podcast, I will be talking about environmental education uh, and more specifically using music to help improve and advance environmental education. So what is environmental education? Uh, this is uh, taken off of the United States Environmental Protection Agency website where they describe environmental education as a process that allows individuals to explore environmental issues, engage in problem solving, and take action to improve the environment. So environmental education is an awesome opportunity to help people build a solid foundation for environmental stewardship um, and raise awareness for our environment. So how, necessary, how uh, can music help uh, improve environmental education necessarily? Well, uh, 
there are uh, a lot of cognitive development uh, benefits to to uh, music that we can use to um, help connect uh, and engage people in environmental education. So in a uh, in an article written by Jenny Yoon, uh, a, a neuroscientist, uh, she talks about how the brain is divided up into two separate sides, the analytical side of the brain and subjective artistic side of the brain. And when both of, both of these sides of the brain are activated is or stimulated and stimulated equally is when uh, development happens. And then she later on writes about how music um, is one of those activities and being involved in music is one of those activities uh, that can activate both sides of the brain which improves and promotes development in the brain especially in the young brain so um, using this engaging factor to music and development cognitive development uh, aspect to music and pairing that up with environmental education uh, i think that's an awesome pairing uh, especially when we're thinking about uh, improving environmental education. Um, and to kind of go off of that, Sylvian Moreno, uh, a digital, uh, a digital uh, medicine expert, uh, talks about and uh, conducted many studies that reported evidence indicating a positive transfer from musical experience to other cognitive domains such as language, mathematics, symbolic and spatial temporal reasoning, visual spatial abilities, verbal memory, self-esteem, and general intelligence. So typically when talking about environments, or excuse me, uh, when typically talking about uh, music education, there's a statement that's, that's uh, is thrown around that music can help students in other aspects of their education. It can help them in other classes like uh, math, science, social studies. Well, we can see here that there is some truth to that. So um, if it helps out in all these other uh, areas of study, Pairing that up with environmental education is an awesome way to get people involved and engaged in environmental education and in, just in general in our environment. So throughout our history, there are lots of examples to show the relationship that and the environment has with music. Um, and so Turner and Friedman uh, write about how some historians of science consider that particularly around the 18th century enlightenment, um, and scientific revolution is where um, music and the environment kind of had some sort of disconnect. Um, so when we started focusing more on secular music um, and uh, you know things of that nature, and it wasn't until the Romantic era um, that there was a, a that that connection between music and the environment was being rebuilt. Uh, just because the uh, as, uh, the elements of the Romantic era displayed emotion, passion, purity, nature, and that connection between humans. An amazing example of this is one of the most popular romantic composers um, in our history, Ludwig von Beethoven, uh, which, is, which Turner and Friedman write um, about his connection to the environment. Uh, Beethoven in his um, in his adult life started to lose his hearing at a very um, young age um, and uh, he kind of used uh, his music and nature to get him through that so um, here's a letter that he wrote to a friend uh, and which kind of explains his relationship to you know relationship with nature um, and his music uh, he said he writes how glad am i to be able to roam in the wood and thicket among the trees and flowers and rocks 
None one can love the country as I do. My bad hearing does not trouble me here. In the country, every tree seems to speak to me, saying, Holy, holy. In the woods, there is an enchantment which expresses all things. So once again, despite his hearing loss, he found the beauty in in uh, in nature and he he shows he, he establishes this through his music and in his symphony number no. six um there are all of his um, all of his or excuse me each movement is named after uh, you know each experience that he had while he was roaming the countryside um and even today there are examples of um of music that is being used to help uh, bring environmental awareness to people, such as Earth Blessing by uh, uh, David Moore, uh, O Earth Loving Mother by Mark Surrett. Um, both of these are were composed and programmed to uh, help spread environmental awareness um, to their audience. So because of all of this rich history that, is, that displays the strong connection between uh, music, the environment, and humans, and as well as the cognitive uh, benefits to being involved in music, pairing that up with environmental education is an excellent combination that I think should be utilized uh, in order to uh, uh, educate people on the current events of our environment, um, the current issues that we're facing in our environment, and to promote uh, people t uh, and to promote uh, environmental awareness, help build a solid foundation for environmental stewardship, so we can work together to uh, solve all of these issues that we face today. So that is a, a research overview of what I have been doing for um, my class that I'm taking and for this Earth Day podcast. So I, uh, I hope you all enjoyed and thank you so much for listening. Hello, this is Ella Kozad, currently a freshman at Northern State University, double majoring in elementary and special education. And with my passion for helping students, I not only want to leave a positive impact on them, but also an impact on them to influence our environment too and to help it out. So with that I chose the topic recycling education in elementary classrooms. When was the first time you were taught in school about recycling? Was it early on in your educational years? Many think the term recycling and recycling education are too complex but they are quite simple. The definition of recycling is the action or process of converting waste into reusable materials. So what is recycling education? According to the United States Environmental Protection Agency in 2021, it is the education needed to encourage people to take action towards improving life and protecting the environment by using materials that otherwise would be considered waste and raw materials. The intriguing part about this is that most elementary classrooms do not know this term, let alone perform any type of recycling, according to the South Dakota standards in 2015, which is why it is important for this concept to be integrated into schools, curriculums, and to be enforced throughout the whole school and its system. The lack of recycling knowledge is negatively impacting the environment's future, but teaching children about the process and benefits can change that impact greatly and will be the start of something great for many, many years. By implementing recycling education into elementary classrooms, soon over time, there will be great success with recycling and the impacts it has environmentally. 
And now for our last panel, Local Connections, by Addison Cumbo and Annie Witt. Hello, my name is Addison Cumbo. I'm a freshman at Northern State University, and I'm also on the track and field team at NSU. For my Earth Day podcast topic, I chose prescribed burns and how they affect the Midwest ecosystem. I chose this topic because my dad is a Forest Service firefighter and is very passionate about his job. I also wanted to know why he brags about his job so often. I also found this topic very interesting because how can something like fire benefit an ecosystem? Also, prescribed burns happen around me a lot, so I feel like I should be educated on prescribed burns so that I know what happens to the ecosystem I live in. So let me start you off with a question. When you were younger, did your parents ever tell you not to play with fire? Because mine sure did, and they still do to this day. You may be wondering, what even is a prescribed burn? Well, according to USDA, a prescribed burn is a controlled application of fire by a team of fire experts under specified weather conditions to restore the health to an ecosystem that depends on fires. Now, some benefits of a prescribed burn for an ecosystem in the Midwest includes gets rid of invasive insects and plants, it betters the grass for animals, improves animal habitats, and also helps trees and wanted plants grow rather than the invasive species. Now, let me tell you a little bit about prescribed burns. In 2019, Einsberg and many more authors wrote that indigenous people use prescribed burns to modify ecoculture systems by promoting the ecosystem structure and composition. Prescribed burns also benefit the ecosystem by bringing nutrients back into the soil that's needed for plants to grow. Prescribed burns also help prevent wildfires by getting rid of dead leaves and plants that are more likely to catch on fire. In 2022, Brown stated prescribed fire also can be the most cost-effective way to maintain certain historic scenes, such as national parks that we have all around the U.S. Now, prescribed burns are not always the best. There are definitely some consequences. For example, the bad air quality. People that live near prescribed burn breathe in the bad air quality and that results into health issues. Secondly, they bring harm to firefighters. Firefighters are putting their life at risk with dealing with the prescribed burn. And lastly, private property landowners are at risk because if a prescribed burn gets out of control, their land can be destroyed by the fire. And that already destroyed all the hard work that these private landowners put into their land. Earlier this week, I interviewed Ryan Cumbo, a zone fire management officer. He couldn't be with us today, so I'd like to read you his answers to some of my questions. I asked him how effective are prescribed burns in restoring land in the Midwest. Cumbo answered with, Restoring native prairie using prescribed burns have been an effective tool. There are primarily two types of prairie restoration occurring in the recent years. The first being reducing wood enroachment. The second is reducing non-native species of grasses. Both of these have been measurably demonstrated that using fire as a tool is very effective. Both will improve prop and grass diversity for numerous species of wildlife. One treatment is not enough. This is an ongoing management tool. My second question for Mr. Cumbo was, what are some benefits you've seen firsthand when conducting a prescribed burn? Cumbo answered with, I have seen native prairie species of grasses dominate after prescribed burning. 
This was mainly in mixed grass and warm season grass models. The reduction of the thatch layer that has an accumulated over time was reduced dramatically, allowing a fresh start for the native prairie to grow. I have seen an increase of native prairie and wood enroachment areas shortly after prescribed burning in wildfires. I have also seen a prescribed burn area dramatically reduce the intensity of wildfires that occurred the following year. My third question for Ryan Cumbo was, what is it about prescribed burning that is beneficial to our ecosystem? He answered with, many species of wildlife benefit from prescribed burns and survive on native flora. The material that is burned will go back into the soil, providing nutrients. Prescribed burns can increase wildflower diversity in prairie ecosystems. Many pollinators benefit from having a variety of food sources. And my last question was, are there other options than prescribed burns? He answered with, prescribed burning is just another tool in the toolbox. There are many other things along with prescribed burning that will benefit the prairie. Grazing shortly after prescribed burn in a pasture with cool season non-native prairie can set back the undesirable species of grasses, ensuring the warm season grasses will dominate at a later date. Using mechanical treatments for woody enroachment is very useful in areas that may be too risky for prescribed burning and can also be used for areas that need to be prepped for prescribed burning. I want to give a big thanks to Ryan Cumbo, Zone Fire Management Officer, for answering all my questions about prescribed burns. Now that I have told you all about prescribed burns and you know what they are, I want to leave you with a question. Would you recommend a prescribed burn in your local ecosystem? Hi, my name is Annie Witt. I graduated from Webster, South Dakota, and am a freshman at Northern State University. My major is communications. My topic of my essay is the importance of family farming and the benefits compared to corporate farming. I was inspired to choose this topic because I grew up on a small family farm near Bristol, South Dakota. Growing up on a farm and having hands-on experiences taught me so much about life. With that, I saw the hard work and countless hours that go into this profession. The USDA classifies family farms as any farm organized as a sole proprietorship, partnership, or family corporation. Family farms differ from corporate farming mainly due to the ownership and processes used to raise their product, whether that be livestock or crops. Corporate farms are usually owned by large business owners and investors who do not have any part in the actual labor going into this business, or little knowledge. Another difference is family farms exclude the use of hormones, antibiotics, chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and so much more. Excluding the use of those detrimental chemicals and processes allows the product to grow much more naturally and efficiently. Another important factor is family farming excludes the use of monoculture. Peter Kogut explains that monoculture is the growth of one single crop in a certain area year after year without rotation. This is also used with livestock as well. It is detrimental because it can lead to diseases and is very unnatural and not useful for the earth. Monoculture also leads to poor product care, which can affect everyone, whether that be the consumer or the planet. No matter who you are and where you may be in the world, whether you live in a city or the middle of nowhere, I can assume that there is something that you use in your everyday life that was brought to you by a farmer. When you step back and look at the grand scheme of things, farming makes the world go round. 
No matter what products you may be using, at least one portion of that certain product is more than likely produced by a farmer. But what is not often thought about when using these products is how they are being produced. There is so much more that goes behind the farming industry that the general public does not see or think about. Despite the negative views on the farming industry, family farming functions as the most beneficial farming industry in our environment and economy in comparison to the corporate and large-scale farming industries. And with that last clip from Annie, that wraps up our Earth Day podcast, Many Voices, One Planet. We hope you all enjoyed it and were able to learn more about the idea of environmental stewardship, along with specific ways each of us as individuals can contribute to the protection of the environment. We all play a crucial role in keeping our environment safe and healthy, and it is important we carry out these responsibilities to ensure a safer planet for all generations to follow. We thank you all for joining us today, and a special thank you to Dr. Brown and her class for organizing Many Voices, One Planet.